All right, well, here we go. First off, I just want to remind you to please bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. Oftentimes, I'll have the text up here on the screen. Sometimes I won't. It just depends on how much time I have during the week to get those sorts of things done. But I do want to encourage you to bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. Uh, it is my sincere conviction that a deep engagement with God begins through a deep engagement with His Word. And I want to come here as a family on Sunday morning and be in God's Word together as God's people. So please do bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. And for the next several months at least, we are going to be in the Samuel narratives, the books of First and Second Samuel. And this is a study that I'm really excited about. I love these books. I think it's probably the best literature in the Bible. They are masterfully told stories, and they've got everything that interests us today. They've got battles, they've got romance, they've got politics, they've got friendship and betrayal, uh, they've got brotherhood, they've got uh, you know, palace and political intrigue, all this great stuff. And it's also so important for us to get our heads around this today because there is a lot in these two books, even though they're in the Old Testament, a lot in these two books for us as the people of God, the church, today. And it's in these books that we have significant promises made by God to his servant David about the coming Messiah. And there are other things as well. So we're going to be camping out for a while in the Old Testament, so please do bring your Bibles. And right now you can open up and get ready to the book of 1 Samuel. So since I've been here, uh, there's been a couple different things that we've done. On one Sunday, I preached through a chapter. Um, the following Sunday, I preached through a whole book. And then last week, we preached through four verses. So not a ton of consistency that way. The Samuel study is going to be similar. At times, we'll tackle a chapter. At times, we'll zero in on a couple of verses. And at times, we may do a few chapters as we work our way through this part in Israel's history. So uh, hopefully, it's exciting. Hopefully, it's engaging. And hopefully, it's informative for you as well. So before we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 1, we need a little bit of background to this book. So I have a slide up here on the screen. How many of you read Deuteronomy 28 this week? Deuteronomy 28, the most uplifting chapter in the Bible, right? Man, okay, so write this down. You've got to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 this week in order to really understand what we're going to be studying for the next several weeks. In the Hebrew Bible, that is the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are grouped together as Israel's history. Now, you'll notice that I left out the book of Ruth. That is somewhere else in the Hebrew Bible. That's part of a book, I'm sorry, part of a collection of books related to festivals. But Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings all go together, and they are Israel's history told in light of the book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 28. So to understand Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, you've got to get Deuteronomy 28. So write that down and read Deuteronomy 28 this week. I'm going to summarize it for you with this slide. It goes like this. Listen to the voice of God and live. Disobey or disregard the voice of God. In other words, listen to the voice of man. And die. Miserably. All right, you'll see what I mean when you read Deuteronomy 28. That section in scripture is called the covenant blessings and curses. And I want to clarify curses right there. 
it's not so much that God is cursing the people, but it's this, the natural consequence of ignoring the clearly revealed word and will of God is the removal of his blessing and protection. You want to disregard the voice of God and his instructions? What do you think is going to happen? You're going to incur the wrath laid out in Deuteronomy 28. So in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, we see some of those blessings. We also see some of the curses that follow disobedience. So please do read Deuteronomy 28 this week. All right, now a little more background. We are in the period of the Judges. So just a a little more biblical uh, Old Testament review. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books go together. Uh, They are known as the books of Moses, or the law, or the Pentateuch. And they speak of the origins of the universe, the origins of the people of Israel, through whom God is going to bring about a global blessing. They talk about Israel's enslavement in Egypt and God's deliverance of his people, leading them ultimately to the promised land. And then we get to the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is all about Israel taking possession, or I guess repossessing, the land that God gave to his people. And then we get to Judges, and things go downhill from there. That's where we begin to see these curses from the law coming out. Israel did not fully obey God, and they turned away from him. And now, in the book of Judges, we enter into Israel's dark ages. And it's characterized by this phrase here on the screen. This is the common refrain throughout the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. What does it seem like the answer is to bring about law and order? Go ahead and say it. A king! And in the Hebrew Bible, what comes immediately after this phrase? 1 Samuel chapter 1. Which, if you've read that book, you know it's all about Samuel the kingmaker and Israel's first kings, Saul and David. So this is where we are going to be focusing our study. And again, This is the period of the judges. This is the dark ages. Israel has spiraled into sin and disbelief and abandonment of the covenant that they made with Yahweh, their God, and things are not going well. Things are not going well. And then we get to the book of 1 Samuel. Now, it's a little bit about this book in terms of who wrote it. We don't really know. It could have been Samuel. There are some other plausible suggestions as to who the author is. Um... Throughout this study, I'm just going to say the narrator, all right? The narrator. It's the person who's narrating Israel's history. He or she is the one telling this story. We don't know who wrote it. But the narrator is what I'm going to be referring to. And we call this person the omniscient narrator. The word omniscient means all-knowing. This omniscient narrator seems to know what people are thinking, how they're feeling, what's going on inside. Uh, He's got a, a window into their soul, so to speak. So we're going to be referring to the narrator, uh, God's chosen person who communicated this story. And again, this is an amazingly told story. There are all kinds of links back to Genesis. Um, There's foreshadowing. There's a repetition of themes. And we're going to draw out some of these things in our study together. All right, so let's get to it. The book of 1 Samuel. So here we go. Follow along in your Bibles with me. Verse 1 introduces us to a man by the name of Elkanah, Elkanah, 
On your bulletin insert there, you've got a list of important names to remember, and Elkanah is at the top of that list. So here's what we learn about him. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. All right, let's pause for a moment. In this culture, in this period in history, if a man had a wife and she couldn't have children, oftentimes he took another wife so that they could have kids. So multiple wives at this time, it was not the initial design, but it was permitted for the sake of having kids. By stylizing Elkanah in this way, the narrator is recalling for us some of the great patriarchs out of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, men who had multiple wives because their wives could not have children. And these two women, Hannah and Penina, uh, are his two wives. It appears that Hannah is the first or the favored wife, and the text here calls Penina the other, and that phrase can also mean the second. So it's our understanding that Hannah was the first wife. She couldn't have kids, and so um, Elkanah took uh, a second wife, Penina. The text says that she had children, but Hannah did not. And by portraying Hannah this way, the narrator hints that she will eventually have a child and that that conception will be an act of God. And when we have seen that so far throughout Genesis, that child who was uh, miraculously conceived or uh, whom God, uh, on the woman whom he intervened on in order that she could conceive, that child accomplished great things for the nation. So here we are in Israel's dark ages, and we meet a woman whose situation sounds a lot like the women that we read about in Genesis. Could it be that God is going to bring about the next great wave in his salvation story through his people? This is what we are being led to expect by the narrator. The text goes on like this. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. So the verse begins year by year. This is a testimony to the pious character of the man Elkanah. In the law, the people of Israel are instructed to celebrate certain feasts, to have certain times of remembrance. This man does this every year as instructed. This is a good guy. As we're going to see throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, there aren't a lot of good guys. There's a lot of bad guys. Right off the bat, we meet one of the good guys. This is a pious, devout man of God who's going up in accordance with the law to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I want to pause real quick. We see a couple of other names in verse 3, and these names are on your handout. Hophni, Phineas. The sons of Eli. Eli is the most powerful man in the land at this time. He is uh, the priest at Shiloh, the high priest, the main guy. The one who is supposed to be the closest to Yahweh, Israel's God. His sons' names are Hophni and Phinehas. On the surface, this doesn't mean a whole lot, but let me fill you in just a little bit. Those are Egyptian names. Egyptian names. Who had previously enslaved the people of Israel for 400 years? Egypt. Did Egypt have priests? 
Of course they did. Did they worship false gods? Of course they did. The man closest to Yahweh names his kids after Egyptians? That would be like an American guy having two sons and naming them like Hussein and Bin Laden, right? You don't do that. Give them good Jewish names. The narrator uses events like this in order to foreshadow for us, in order to give us a clue as to the character of these people. Next week, we're going to meet in detail Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and see what they're all about. Right now, this is just a taste of what's to come. The closest man to Yahweh? Giving his sons, the priests, Egyptian names? You didn't do that. You did not do that. The text says in verse 4, Whenever the day came for, for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. So this was part of the festival. You would offer sacrifices, and then together with the priest, you would eat the sacrifice. So Penina received the amount of food uh, at the sacrifice in proportion to the number of kids she had. So she got a lot of food, all right? Verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Your text might say a choice or a select portion. Because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. So this is kind of a nice gesture by Elkanah. I'm going to give you the the best part of the meat because you're my favorite wife and I love you. However, however to her, this was a perpetual reminder of her barrenness. So here, the text is going to call her, here's her rival, Penina, with all this food and all these kids, and there's Hannah with her really good piece of meat. Right? This is a perpetual reminder of her barrenness. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. I had somebody ask me, um, so Matt, does this mean that, that polygamy, having multiple wives, is okay? No, I can make the theological case that it is not, but for a period in time, it's permitted. But does this seem like fun? Why do you want, why do you, anyway, yeah, no, it's not a good situation. The text calls her the rival. So the rival was irritating her, look at all my food, look at all my kids. He might have married you first, but I'm the favored wife. You don't have any. How's your piece of meat? Your single piece of meat. Verse 7, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept bitterly and would not eat. This is an honor-shame society. An honor-shame society. We don't really have that nowadays. We don't, we don't really live in this mode. But honor and shame were the two things that were most important to you. Here she is being shamed. So she doesn't eat because of the shame involved. So her husband, Elkanah, says to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you? Then ten sons? No! No, you don't! Sure, you're a good guy, but in this time period, husbands are for survival, protection, food, shelter. Children are for honor. It would be better for her to be dead than to have a life of perpetual shame with no children. 
Kiana, I appreciate you. You're a good dude. But no, you are not better than ten children. Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. So in this text, Hannah is portrayed as the paragon or the model of faith in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. She's the only person shown going up to the house of the Lord to worship and to sacrifice. I'm sorry, the only woman showed going up to the house of the Lord to worship and to sacrifice. She's the only woman in the Old Testament shown praying. She's the only woman in the Old Testament who is recorded as having both made and kept a vow to the Lord. And here, in this short paragraph, she uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, more times than any other woman in the Old Testament. This is an incredible woman of faith. And in the Jewish tradition, she's held up as this model of the faithful Israelite or Jewish woman. And here also we see the name, uh, the Lord Almighty. That is literally Yahweh of the armies. He is the one who is in control both of the heavenly armies and the armies of Israel. And this is going to be a very important concept as we move throughout the Samuel narratives. The Lord of the armies. Keep that in mind. So here she is and she makes this vow to the Lord saying, if you will just please give me a son, I will dedicate him back to you. And verse 11, she has this phrase, no razor will ever be used on his head. So what she's talking about here is something called a Nazarite vow. If you want to read up on that, it's in Numbers chapter 30. You can take a look this week. Numbers chapter 30. Basically, a Nazarite vow was when uh, an Israelite separated himself and dedicated himself wholly to the Lord, and there were a few stipulations. You couldn't eat or drink anything from the vine, so no wine, for example. You couldn't cut your hair, and you could not come in contact with the dead body. You were separated, you were consecrated wholly to the Lord, for a focused time of service and devotion. So she's saying, if you'll just give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you, and his whole life will be one big Nazarite vow. Please, God, give me a son. So here comes Eli. little hint, little spoiler alert. Not a good guy. <laughs> Throughout the narratives, he's portrayed as being dense, uh, as being non-perceptive. So here's our first glimpse of, that, a glimpse of that. Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. You come to the house of the Lord and you're drunk? We're going to see next week why he thought that. Because that's what his sons did. So he thinks Hannah is drunk. And he says to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Real perceptive guy. Hannah replies in verse 15, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. 
I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I'm not pouring out drink. It's a fun little play on words. I'm not pouring out drink. I'm pouring out my heart. I'm deeply troubled in my heart, so I'm praying in my heart. You don't hear my words because I'm praying on the inside. That's where my grief and my anguish is. She says, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. This is something that you need to note. The text says wicked woman. Some of your Bibles might say daughter of Belial. All throughout this study, First and Second Samuel, we're going to meet several sons and daughters of Belial. Belial was the god of death. And uh, I believe he was an Ugaritic god. Um, There's a people group in that area. And uh, a son or daughter of Belial, that particular phrase was reserved for the most heinous of Israelites. The sons and daughters of Belial were those Israelites who grievously violated the law and acted out against the people of God. And we're going to see this phrase. Oftentimes it's, it's rendered um, a worthless man or worthless woman because Belial doesn't really mean a whole lot in our culture. But keep this in mind. A son or a daughter of Belial. A son or, or daughter of the death god. She's saying, hey, don't take me as one of those people. I don't come to the place, the tabernacle, drunk. Wait a minute. Think about this. So... If you come to the tabernacle drunk, just by inference, you're a son or daughter of Belial. Spoiler alert, next week, who came to the tabernacle drunk? Eli's sons, the priests, the real sons of Belial, who acted grievously against the law and the people of God. Hannah's saying, I am not a wicked woman. Verse 16, I am not a daughter of Belial, but I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Imagine Eli's surprise. Oh, Verse 17, well then go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant what you've asked of him. She says in verse 18, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went away, and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Hope! In the period of the judges, hope! Light is dawning on the dark ages. She eats, whereas previously she would not. Previously she would shame. She was shamed. Now she has hope. Her head is going to be lifted up. Early the next morning, she worships with her husband. They go back home, and the text says that the Lord remembered her. Now, he hadn't forgotten about her, but what this phrase means in the Old Testament is that Now he's turning his attention toward her, and now he is initiating a new plan, I'm sorry, a new phase in his salvation plan. God is going to act for his people. She has a son, just like she prayed. The text says in verse 20, she named him Samuel, meaning, because I asked the Lord for him. He answered her prayer. She goes from shame honor. So here's what happens next. We won't read this last section. Let me just summarize it for you. The time comes the following year to go back to, this, uh, to the tabernacle to celebrate this feast, um, to do sacrifices and worship. And she says, hey, Elkanah, let me stay here until the boy is weaned. When the boy is weaned, I will take him uh, and present him at the house of the Lord. And again, this is a testimony to Elkanah's heart and the fact that he's a pious Israelite. The the law tells us in Leviticus, I believe, that he could have vetoed her promise, her vow. 
She said, God, if you just give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you forever. Elkanah, he could have said, no, you're the firstborn son of my favorite wife. You're mine. But instead, he lets this vow stand. He's going to dedicate his son to the Lord's work for the rest of his life. He says in verse 23, do what seems best to you. Do what seems best to you. So eventually the boy is weaned. In this part of the world, they didn't have access to all of the uh, nourishment and the healthy foods that we can give to babies nowadays. So they would oftentimes breastfeed their babies until three, four, sometimes five. So the boy is weaned. We don't know how old he is exactly, but the text does call him a boy. He's a small boy, and um, on one of those years, she takes him back, and she presents him to Eli, and she says in verse 26, Pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. I'm going to keep my vow. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. An amazing statement of faith from the example of faith in the Old Testament. So here's our takeaway for today. We are in the middle of the dark ages in this passage. All hope appears to be gone. The people have rebelled against the covenant. But their God, Yahweh, our God, is a faithful God. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised that one day he was going to send someone who would reverse the effects of the fall, sin. We know that that person now is and was Jesus. Here, of course, they don't know that. But this is the next phase in God's plan of salvation. He is moving his people out of the dark ages and into the light. And Samuel is going to be his chosen vessel for the next several years. And then eventually we're going to meet King David, from whose line our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, comes. We have a faithful God who remembers his promises, who keeps his word, and who acts in the best interests of his people. This is our God, amen? Amen. We worship him this morning. I pray that you would come back next week and in the weeks to come to learn more about God and to see his amazing story of salvation in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. At times, it feels like, man, why isn't the Lord moving? Why isn't he acting? It's because you're doing so in accordance with your perfect timing. You made a promise to the people of God all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that eventually the curse of the fall would be undone. You're not slow to act. You're carrying out your plan of salvation. And God, I thank you for the Samuel narratives. Israel's history, where we see poignantly, how you acted, how you moved, how you brought your people along slowly, how you revealed yourself to them over time, how you provided for them, how you met their needs both physically and spiritually. And God, you are our God too. You're doing the same things today. God, I pray that we would be excited about your word. I pray that we would be a people of the text, that we would see what you're doing throughout history, what you accomplished and what you're doing now. God, we are excited to be in your service, and we thank you for setting your affection on us. 
may we in turn respond with hearts of gratitude and hearts of worship because we love you. It's in the Savior's powerful name that we pray. Amen.